0: This is Set Aside
1: Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone, and thank you for setting aside some time today to listen to our MSPN podcast. My name is Marina Cobb, and I am your host for today's episode. Today's episode is a fan favorite, the MSPN wish list. Just in time for the holidays, we will discuss what we would want in the Medicare secondary pair practice or the MSP practice in a perfect world. To discuss today, we have Kira Koba and Amber Warman, two fabulous members of the MSPN board. Welcome, Kira and Amber. Thanks, Marina.
2: Thanks, Marina.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here today. Uh, Kira and Amber actually discussed Section 111 in depth for an earlier podcast. So if you're interested, we highly recommend going back and checking that episode out as well. So Kira, let's start with you, if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about your background.
0: Sure. Well, I'm actually the past president of the MSPN Network, and um, I'm serving my final year. My term has expired uh, on the board, I'll be off the board in December or January, I should say. but I remain very active in this organization with Amber, is the co-chair of the Section 111 and Conditional Payment Committee uh, where we really focus on all things reporting and liens. So if you're looking for a new committee to join, we're always welcoming new members. Great discussion in some of the uh, topics, wish list items that are on our list today are definitely items that we've discussed in our committee. My day job is as a principal at Allen Coba Compliance Solutions, which is a full service Medicare secondary payer company. And we do Section 111 reporting, conditional payments, MSAs, MCPs, life care plans, you name it. uh, We do it.
1: That's great. What about you, Amber?
2: I am currently a uh, senior workers' compensation examiner for the Montana Municipal Interlocal Authority, and we're a a risk pool for incorporated cities and towns across the state of Montana. I I first kind of got interested in um, the MSP network as I started to recognize MSA needs in the industry, and I really wanted to have a greater understanding of the MSAs, pro administration, things like that, as it was being implemented more and more. So um, I ended up getting my MSCC and then put my hat in the ring for MSPN for the board, and I was elected. This was my first year. And as a side note, a little plug maybe for uh, membership here. Um, if anyone out there is, is considering um, joining MSPN and you're on the fence, um, I will tell tell you it has been an eye opening experience for me the access that you have to professionals in the industry the collaboration and the real uh, effect that you can have for change and improvements in the industry is very real and i definitely would not hesitate to join but having said that being on the section 111 and conditional payment lien committee uh, co-chairing with the fabulous uh, Kira Mm -hmm. has just taught me so much, and I, I think a lot of the things on our wish list today, as piggybacking off of Kira has has come up in our committee meetings and. As, as a newer committee this year, we have had so much interest, people, you know, joining and, and interacting and and discussing the issues they're running into and and some of the the things that we would like to see. Actually, uh, I can just bring up one right now as we kind of move along into our wish list. One as a claims examiner that I would I would like to see is a more accurate algorithm or or sweeper system, whatever CMS uses to identify conditional payments that have been made more accurate identifications on the, on the ICD codes and relatedness to the actual claim. I I was actually speaking earlier with Kira and I was bringing up an example. I recently saw for a Medicare beneficiary for a claim. I had claim is accepted for, for bilateral hearing loss. And I recently got a notice of conditional payments of around $2,500 um, of ICD codes that were for cervicalgia, neck pain, completely unrelated to the claim. Double-checked the ICD codes on the Section 111 reporting. Um, they were correct, the bilateral hearing loss. And it just kind of hit me. The, the, the ICD codes that were listed on their lean uh, notice, not one of them had anything to do with hearing loss. And so it's, it kind of baffles me where, where these are coming from I think maybe Kira can speak to it. We're seeing this more and more and and it's actually kind of frustrating and kind of confusing as to how these liens got put on there and had absolutely nothing to do with the the accepted condition.
0: Yeah, and, and it makes it really hard too for carriers, but it also makes it hard on Medicare. So like, I mean, the Department of Treasury gets referred debts that aren't valid debts all the time. And they're not valid because they don't meet the definition of a conditional payment if they are for completely unrelated treatment. There is no expectation of reimbursement in those situations. Medicare is primary and they shouldn't be seeking recovery from these carriers or the beneficiaries. And it it really is hurting everybody. I'll tell a horror story that I had um, years ago, and it really broke my heart. There was a woman who had fallen in a grocery store. And she had a facial, facial laceration. She settled her claim for what I would consider a pretty nominal amount because she didn't have like a lot of injuries. So um, we settled the claim for $10,000. But at the time of her settlement, she was actively treating for cancer. And her attorney never reached out to Medicare Never tried to make sure that there weren't conditional payments on this. Never tried to get the conditional payments reduced. And she started getting these letters from Medicare and she didn't understand what they were. She didn't know what to do with them. And then all of a sudden, Department of Treasury, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, I mean, this happened like it kind of spiraled. They started garnishing her federal benefits and they took her entire settlement in payments and I couldn't get it back. Because we had missed the time frames, and she could not afford to take the case um, as high as it really needed to be taken to get it resolved because it was so delinquent. And I did it for a very long time pro bono, but it got to the point where I was going to need to go into federal court. and really her attorney should have been on the hook for this. It was really his fault for not handling it with her. But when it's such a nominal amount, how do you see your lawyer? Right, right. <laughs> so it becomes, you know, something that is absolutely monumental to this poor beneficiary. And we, I mean, we tried everything, but the money was gone. Like they already took it from her. And this was, like I said, years ago. I, I would hope that today that might that is happening less. But that was a really bad, like, because we I don't usually take plaintiff cases either, but it was just so sad that we decided to try to help her, it becomes such a burden on both sides, right? It's a burden for Medicare because they're chasing stuff that isn't due and owing. It's a burden for the carriers because they're paying to defend things that they shouldn't even be having to deal with. But the other issue for me that kind of stems from this is why isn't Medicare avoiding making these payments? So to me, what it appears like is Medicare is avoiding making related payments, but they're appropriately making payments for other treatment. But the contractor that they have hired to do lien recovery is making grave errors on these debt recoveries. And they're just looking for money that is not at all related to the claim and seeking it. And it's it's really not fair to anyone involved in the process.
2: I have claims where we just end up paying it because it's easier, mm-hmm. it, you know, when you when you're getting when you're getting a notice and and you're you know you start to go up the appeals and it's nine hundred dollars. At some point, you're like, ah, just cut the check for nine hundred dollars and close the issue. Yeah, um, and it's it's it ends up being cheaper to do that than hiring a vendor to do the investigation. To our, I mean, from an insurer standpoint, it's just wildly inefficient. And it it I'd be interested to see. Do you remember? Weren't we? Wasn't there some sort of statistic of what the error rate was?
0: Yeah, but it's not to me. The statistics or the the data that we've collected so far from CMS, I don't think is completely. Um, it, it's not even that the data that they have is inaccurate. It doesn't give you a full picture, okay. because what I believe it's is missing is the number of CPN disputes. So we know how many demands get disputed, but I think a lot of the unrelated charges are getting caught on the conditional payment notices and removed by the time they're on the demands because the carriers are appealing or disputing the disputes. So uh, the conditional payment notices. And to be honest, even the accuracy rate that was provided for demands, like the amount of demands that are overturned, the amount of appeals that are filed, I still don't think that it's reasonable. I think it should be a lot lower. And I think these government contractors should be held to a higher standard. Um,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's crazy how one date of service or one code can just throw off. I mean, like you said, Kira, it just created this huge issue for this specific claimant. Um, For those people that don't, may not know, can either of you talk about the process? You know, do these conditional payments go to the contractor and there's some grouper, there's some kind of automatic process that happens. And so these unrelated claims come through or how does that work?
0: Yeah, well, um, it depends on who you ask. (laughs) So depending on who you ask over at the CRC or the BCRC, but generally speaking, there's a grouper that's being used. that's based on the diagnostic codes that are reporting, reported, but they do what I like to call is I think they call it grouping the codes, but they're supposed to be capturing all of uh, any and all codes related to whatever the body part that was injured. But we know that this isn't accurate because we're reporting hearing loss, like the example that uh, Amber gave, and they're including neck pain. It defies what they're telling us is supposed to be happening. There should be some manual review by a person, but I don't believe that that could be happening with the amount of inconsistencies we're seeing. And it's not just Amber, it's everybody. Everybody is getting liens that are unrelated, that have lots and lots and lots of unrelated charges on them.
2: Then I think about a, 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 conditional payment notice that I received recently where the the diagnostic code, you know, how they bold the primary one was, was a, a general health visit, like a, like a Medicare general health visit code. And I, and yeah. it occurred to me, like those, those are things that should probably automatically not be put on notices. Right. Because I can't imagine where, like your, your, it's what are, what are the Medicare visits called the, the beneficiaries? You know, they have like one preventative, the Medicare annual visit, wellness, visit, the annual, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it, the code was specific to that. I was thinking, you know, how I, I can't imagine uh, where an insurance claim would pay for the the Medicare wellness visit, right? So, um, if there could be some way where those types of codes, visits falling under those annual exams, were kind of automatically either reviewed before they ended up on a conditional payment notice, prior to being added, or or just simply tossed out because right it, it doesn't make sense that that would be on there. I mean I I even had one recently where you know I, I have a claimant who who has a fair amount of claims, probably 10 12 claims and it seems to be that I'll get a notice the liens on the notice are completely unrelated to one of his claims. let's say it's a you know it's a net claim and, and these are feet claims the, the diagnostics on the CPNs are, are diabetes related okay and then so so we'll dispute that. And, and we get those taken care of. And then a couple months later, they show up on a different claim, um, yep. you know, and it just it kind of jumps from claim to claim to claim for a specific mm-hmm. claim. It's a really it's good point. All of them. And it's just it's kind of inefficient.
1: Yeah, that's probably on the wish list, too, right? Yeah. All these different claims opening up. Yeah. I think it would be more efficient for our side, but also Medicare side if we didn't have claim upon claim upon
0: claim opening up. Right. So with that, I think, is there another wish list item? So the next item is the ability to terminate ORM and report TPOC specific to ICD codes. So instead of having to send in more than one claim input file on the same claim number, which a lot of systems are incapable of doing, the idea is to have when you report open ORM Okay, if you report ORM as yes, you can associate diagnostic codes with that ORM yes. Um, And if you were to say, for example, terminate ORM on one of those body parts, you could, in another section, associate an ORM term with a body part. Now right now, what CMS is telling people to do for that, if a body parts drop off during the claim, is to just send an update and get rid of that diagnostic code. However, from a Medicare conditional payment and lien standpoint, that becomes very confusing because you did have a period of of ORM with those diagnostic codes and it's not completely clear whether or not the lien contractors would ever know that. So it does raise some, some concerns generally with conflicting information in the section 111 versus what you might be telling the lien contractors. And and that's one of our agenda items for next year to work with CMS on. TPOCs are the same thing. You might have somebody that has four different body parts injured, but one of them is completely resolved and you want to settle it out. You want to just be done with that body part, close just that one out. When you settle that case, you you don't have an option of, of, you have an option of reporting multiple TPOCs, but you don't have an option to say this TPOC is related to only this diagnostic code. This code has settled. So that is wish list item number two. Amber, do you have anything to add to that?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, as, uh, again, as a claims examiner, um, I know in, in the current claim system that we're using, um, when I'm going in to update the Section 111 report, if I remove an ICD code um, because that, that particular part of body or condition is resolved, I can't, I can't see what date I did it or, um, as, as you were talking about, when you yep. have a conditional payment notice come in, yeah, you might have had a date where the ORM termed on that particular body part, but there's not really a way to note what that is. Um, and then in some claim systems, you can't see the running history of that from the claim screen. And right. so uh, coming in as a, a future claims examiner on that claim, it would be, it, it just takes a little more work to try to track down. I mean, obviously noting your file and documenting it in other places, but it would just be really helpful to be able to see that cumulative information in one place on that section right. of reporting. Next thing on our list, um, we wanted to to talk a little bit about the PAID Act. uh, Some of the things that we've identified as as wishes we would have for, for for kind of the changes that are happening, and one of the one of the things that have have come up a lot are uh, terminations of ORMs um, by beneficiaries um, directly to the contractors. And currently, it's there's a little bit of confusion, and we would like some clarification on what the policies are around beneficiaries terminating ORMs, and then subsequently the notice through the Section 111 reporting to the NGHPs. We'd like to see that happen more similar to the group health plans where if a beneficiary contacts and their records are updated to, to terminate an ORM for a condition, that there's notice actually through the Section 111 reporting back to the NGHP notifying them that that change has occurred. Absolutely. Currently, yeah. it's, it's a little... um It's a little wonky,
1: (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) So you mentioned the PAID Act a little bit. If We want to go into a little bit more specific detail. We're looking at the effective date, correct? In December 2021. So that should be in effect any day now, and we should see the effects of what CMS has put together, right?
0: Yeah, they're doing testing now, and you can actually get the Park C&D information on a real-time query that either their website right now. But December 11th is like go live. They'll start returning in the query response files all of the PAID Act information and in the data. And obviously we hope as time goes on, the contact information continues to improve so that you know people that are sending correspondence or reaching out to these plans are going to the right place and they're not being sent in another wild goose chase Also, and I don't know, Amber, if you specifically mentioned, I wanted to just add, CMS provides some data to MAO plans, but they don't provide all of the data. And I think that that, and this is, you know, information that we got from a Medicare Advantage plan, actually during our MSPN conference, annual conference this year, So I have a list here and I wanted to read you all the list of what Part C and D plans don't get. And I think that this is definitely a wish list, like they should get this information. So the things that they don't get are the no-fault exhaust date, the no-fault limit, the TPOC amount, kind of important. They don't get any of the estate information. So, if it's a deceased beneficiary or someone, they don't get any other claimant information. If there was another claimant that maybe needs to be included in the correspondence that's going out on liens, they don't get the policy number or the claim number, which has to make it a little difficult to reach out to um, primary payers. I mean, I know they get the name of the primary payer, but I mean, what do you do? You just reach out and say, this person has a claim. Well, which claim? Like, which claim are you worried about? Claim number is (laughs) important. Policy number is important. They don't get the venue state, which could have different legal ramifications because we have, you know, different circuit courts and different federal circuits treating things. You know, this is all a developing area. So um, your jurisdiction could be very important as well they don't get the self-insured status and they don't get the report contact. So if there was a recovery agent listed for the RRE, they're not getting their information either, which would be super helpful (laughs) if these contractors are going to start sending out liens to know who is handling this RRE's liens. So Just like a couple things too, there's some also been some issue reported with the quality of the data. So sometimes they'll get outdated diagnostics, they'll have ORM inconsistencies. Um, The data arrives post-settlement in liability cases, but I mean, that's just going to be what it is because that's when people report the cases. I don't think we're ever going to fix that uh, unless they start allowing primary plans to actually get to download that three-day settlement lien amount. Right now, you have to be a beneficiary or a plaintiff attorney to do that. And the data often arrives too late for most of the Medicare Advantage plans to avoid making payments. So like, I know we're talking a lot about fixing what's on the liens, but there's like a step before that that would prevent any of these liens from ever being sent. And the step before that is, avoidance. If you know there's a work comp claim and it's been avoided, uh, reported to you, Humana and Aetna and whoever else can avoid making payment for claim-related treatment. You know, assuming that the other carrier is going to make prompt payment. You know, if the, obviously if their client calls them and says they're not paying right now or this is being litigated or whatever else is going on or they're denying it, okay, fine. You want these people to be able to get treatment, but Overall, avoidance, generally, that's the whole point of giving the government all the information that all the IRAs are giving them because it allows them to avoid, avoid making the payments. So if the timeliness of this and the quality of this data being passed to these Medicare Advantage plans would improve, I think we'd all be in a lot better shape. The other thing I've wondered is I'm just going to like throw this out there is our last like food for thought. If Medicare, just brainstorming, if Medicare is getting this data through, through some sort of like an electronic portal to these Medicare Advantage plans, is there a way at some point that the same portal could exist for carriers to send letters to these plans, (laughs) So, is there ever going to be a day where we could go into the Section 111 site, not just to do our reporting, but maybe upload some correspondence to these plans? Could we get a Medicare Advantage and a Part C and D portal? C- can that exist at some point? I don't know. <laughs> wish list. Wish list. Yeah, Merry Christmas. List. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> Happy Holidays. Happy Thanksgiving.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I imagine we could continue to talk for days about what we would like on our wish list. And I'm assuming that our listeners probably agree with you guys. I really appreciate you being here. I'm thinking that you guys should come back for part two next year in 2022. Sure. Perfect. <laughs> and then to our listeners as well, if you have any thoughts, if you agree with us, do you have any other wish list items? Please feel free to reach out to us. I think the more thoughts, the merrier to make this process better for everybody. So, with that, thank you, Amber and Kira, for joining us today and sharing your wish list. I really hope that one or two of these come true in 2022. And as always, thank you to our audience for setting aside some time today. We'll catch you for our next episode. Thank you, guys. Thanks.
2: Thanks.